Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Hello, everyone. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and welcome to Motivational Mondays, where we bring you inspiring stories and insightful conversations with remarkable individuals, many who have overcome some adversity in life, and they're making a difference in the world. Now, that's a perfect summation for our next guest, Eliza Van Court, author, survivor, speaker, and podcaster. Her latest book, I have it right here, it's called A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space, Stand Tall, Raise Your Voice, be heard. It offers practical advice and insights to help individuals grow into their best versions of themselves. So Eliza, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Thank you for having me, Corey. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Well, we're excited you're here too. And um, like I said, you have been through some stuff. <laughs> and um, indeed, indeed. And so, um, and now I know at your core, you sort of, you explain yourself basically, as you know, a teacher, someone who can break down complex topics and simple steps. And in your book, you do a great job of doing that, helping people grow. But before we get into that, I would love for you to share a little bit, as much as you'd like to, about that past, the childhood experiences that are part of your, I guess, your your legacy, if you will, as to what you're bringing forward to the world. So share a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, when I was a little girl, I had a really wonderful mom, actually. And then she had late onset schizophrenia. I was actually paranoid schizophrenia. And at four and a half, she had a breakdown, her first very serious breakdown. And she ended up kidnapping me and taking me across the whole country by truck from truck stop to truck stop to truck stop to New York, from New York to California. And what happened on that trip made me start to conflate invisibility with safety. I thought, if I'm just invisible, then I'm going to be safe. And of course, we all know being invisible isn't safe. It's really dangerous. So I kind of clawed my way out of there. I had a lot of help from my community, but things still weren't going particularly well. I was great at helping other people claim space, not so good about myself. And then in 2013, I had a bike accident. Somebody was texting and driving. They hit me in the head with their car. <clears throat> and I had a bilateral brain injury and a subdural hematoma. And the process of rebuilding my communication brick by brick allowed me to really break down the minutia of human behavior in a way that basically I kind of see myself sometimes like Neo at the end of the matrix. <laughs> He's like, I see the coding. And right, so I started right. sharing it with other people and it was transformative. And so I wrote a book about it. Mm. And did you actually like you uh, lose the ability to communicate because of that injury at the time? Or like how, how severe was that? It wasn't terribly severe. And I could actually communicate. One of my friends who was a nurse said to me, dude, you sound like a stoned third grader. <laughs> so you're just going to slow down a little bit. So when you were I talking. didn't really know what that meant. I knew it wasn't good. Someone else who's a therapist said your vocabulary is gone. You're speaking really slowly. It makes everyone feel incredibly uncomfortable. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. So how you, you're going through a, prop, a a situation, but it's making everyone else feel uncomfortable. Interesting. 
I mean, I think that the thing is people don't want to say anything. You know, when mm-hmm. you're having trouble, everybody wants to pretend it's okay. Yeah, and yeah. in my head, it sounded awesome. <laughs> so I had <laughs> right, no yeah. idea. And I said to my friend, Kim, why is everybody acting so strangely? And she said, Eliza, they're not acting strangely. You are. Your vocabulary shot. You're speaking really slowly. You're repeating yourself. And everyone's really uncomfortable and they don't know what to do. Mm. It reminds me, I mean, in a much more severe situation when the congresswoman, or was she a senator, Gabby, Gabby Giffords was shot in the head and, and we all watched sort of that period, I mean, years, and she's still probably, you know, still trying to rebuild her vocabulary. But that was very similar. We watched something like that happen. And, you know, to me, head injuries are one of the most terrifying things in the world. Like it's something that I actually think about, like, God, please let me get through this life without ever having head trauma. Because everything you've put in it, then you may lose and you have to start again. And that's, you know, really, really traumatic. It's terrifying. I mean, for me particularly, because my communication had always been sort of my superpower. And so that was so scary. And then on top of that, my mom had lived a life not knowing that she was not using her brain the way it should be. She thought all her hallucinations were real. She, you know, and so for me to think, oh man, I'm so far gone that not only am I far gone, but I don't know that I am. That was scary. That was really scary. And so then how do you, uh, I would imagine through your close friends who helped you through it, but then how do you then go from that to saying, okay, um, now I have a book that I want to actually share some of these. I mean, that's quite a jump. So, but you bring us to that point. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to say that, you know, everybody told me I wasn't communicating well. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go out and fix it right now. That's not what I did at all. I went in my bed, I went under the covers and I thought, you know, I'm not going to get out of the covers. (laughs) I'm done. And then I thought, you know, I've been through so much. This can't be the thing that breaks me. And, you know, staying in bed is definitely not a solid and stable life strategy. So I decided to start breaking it all down. And one of my best friends, and this is kind of my philosophy about life, he said, how do you eat an elephant, Eliza? One bite at a time. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I love that. Every day, just a little bit. And eventually I started going out there and working with people on what I'd learned. And it was, and then I gave talks. And what ended up happening is that women after the talks would follow me to the bathroom. Sounds strange. And as I was washing my hands, they'd kind of sidle up to me and say, okay, I got to ask you a question I didn't want to ask in Q and A. And I found that if I was in Hong Kong or New York, it was the same questions. Didn't matter. Texas. And I thought, you know what? These are questions people don't feel safe talking about in public. I need to take these answers out of the darkness and into the sunlight. Yeah. They can't be conversations. I almost named the book Conversations in the Bathroom, but that wasn't <laughs> my, my publisher. I mean, that was the best title. <laughs> well, there's a, but there's a backstory to that though. So it would have made, it would have made perfect sense. I mean, because I, I know what you mean is I've, I've been there. I've been like in an audience at talks or symposiums and I'll, you know, the keynote speaker, I'll kind of catch them off to the side. Maybe not at the urinal because that might, you know, have a whole other implication. <laughs> but slightly awkward. <laughs> Might be a little awkward, but I have, I mean, so I totally get that. And I love that you sort of identified that people were asking the the uncomfortable questions. And, and I, I think what's so important about this book too is, although it's a woman's guide to claiming space, I found a couple of things happen when I was reading it. First, as a man, I realized how many times men are actually imposing in women's spaces. I mean, not that I didn't know that, but when you make the point about like man spreading, like, <laughs> you know, like, 
do what men do sometimes go in that space and be like, yeah, and sit down and, you know, and claim your space. I mean, there's moments when that makes perfect sense. And, um, but I, you know, I became aware of like, gosh, that's awful that a woman has to even do that. Like, why aren't we just making space for the woman? So that was the first thing I thought. But then I also thought, you know, you were also sharing that, um, women are sometimes made to feel small. And it's sort of programmed in them. So you're trying to help them sort of unprogram themselves and go in there and know that you do play small sometimes if you, to your, but to your advantage, but own your space, own who you are. So is that as a man, is that, am I capturing some of the essence you're trying to, ex, to explain in your book? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that we all have intergenerational programming. And that programming is what we walk around with. I mean, it's similar for me. I have racism. I'm a white person. I breathe in racism. So of course I'm going to exhale it and I need to be mindful not to, you know, because it is literally all around me and I am surrounded by it. And that is our culture. And it's similar to sexism, not the same problems, but with sexism, you know, I don't think men in the airport are like in the, on the airplane are like, you know what? I'm going to spread out and take all the armrests because that <laughs> doesn't deserve it. I yeah. think they just. Hey, I get armrests for being alive. That's what I get. I'm, you know, I get to do this. And they don't really think about it because just as women will do certain behaviors that might not be wonderful for us because of our programming, men do the same thing and often it boomerangs onto women. Mm. And that's why I think it's so important. You just tapped into like the the racism thing and the idea that there are some behaviors that are just inherent based on programming. And that's why I find it's so counterproductive in this culture that we're in now where it's like a bad word to, to or it's a bad thing to suggest that, you know, some people are like, they want to be adamant. America's not a racist place. It's not. I'm like, <laughs> how is that sure. even possible? Okay. Like, like how are they even coming out of someone's mouth, you know? And, and it's strange. And it's, and, but, but to call it out is not the bad thing. It is to acknowledge. So then we can counter, counter it, right? That is the most important thing. I mean, when has there ever been a problem that anyone has had ever where the solution is to not acknowledge it exists? <laughs> right. It's it's really absurd, you know. Um, it's impossible. You can't fix a problem unless you name it and you say it's happening. That's why we don't work on our personal problems. That's why we don't work on our societal problems. And race, I think for me, I mean, I talk about one fifth of the book is dedicated to intersectionality and to white women really getting their act together in terms of making sure that we're lifting up all women. You know, I, I call it trickle down feminism is what's been happening for a long time, which is, you know, hey, if that one white woman goes to the top and is a CEO, it's cool. Everyone else like, hey, that you mom that you're struggling to get by, it's going to trickle right down to you. And I don't believe that that's true. I believe that we need to lift women up on a systemic level, every woman, not just worry about the top women getting the biggest salary ever. Yeah. And in fact, that's a really big sort of corporate conversation now in general, because so many people are saying, hey, I'm not represented here in this organization, or I'm not given the opportunity to have a seat at the table. So therefore, people aren't even feeling like they're a part of what's happening in the organizations. They have, they have no vested interest, right? They don't, they don't even feel like uh, they have a chance at growing or getting a promotion. So it's, it's quite counterproductive, you know, when they, when they do that, but yeah. I, I but the language, so. I mean, Maya Angelou has this wonderful thing. She talks about how words matter. She has all these stories about how words matter. She's one of my heroes. She kind of helped me survive my childhood and love her so much. I, read I, have her Barbie, her I have the, I have the Maya Barbie doll just so we're, 
Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't know there was one. Now I want one. Yeah. That's amazing. So, yeah, she's one of my heroes. I actually was 10 feet away from her in college, and I didn't talk to her because she had basically saved my life with her books, and I just felt like... I can't talk to her. She's too cool. And it's one of the greatest regrets of my life. But one, you know, the word that I find very powerful and, and problematic is actually the word inclusion. Because inclusion really to me is the idea of, hey, I created this space. It's my space. And you can come in and be included in my space. Aren't you lucky? And that feels like you're a visitor. You're, you're not really a part of it. And we really need to make, that's why I think belonging is so important. It's not about including people. It's about creating spaces by, for everyone. That's what we really need to do. We all need to feel like it's our space. We shouldn't walk in and say, oh, I'm so happy I'm included in your space. Yeah. And you know, it's funny about that too. It's always like a balance when I hear the word tolerance. Um, you know, this idea like you have to tolerate someone. I, that, that, that's never felt really warm and fuzzy either. That's so really strange. You know what I mean? It's like, Thanks especially when tolerating it comes to like, me. I feel so good now. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you tolerate like, you know, like lactose if you have proper medication. You know what I mean? Like, so the fact that people are in that same category, that's a strange, um, a strange thing too. But I spoke to, um, another dynamic when it comes to women. I love you brought that up. I had, um, Daniela Pierre Bravo on my show and she's on, uh, Morning Joe. She has this amazing book called, you know, The Other, which is about checking that box for women of color and, or just in general women, but women of color specifically. And then she has the dynamic of being Hispanic and then white presenting. Yes. That's which a tricky is one. Another layer, right? And so she, and I just really appreciated her sort of, acknowledging that again, to your point, let's look at what things are, see them for what they are. And then that's the only way we can really then help identify them. So that's exactly right. I always say when we rise together, we rise higher. I mean, as long as we're looking out for ourselves, we're never going anywhere. Just ourselves. You got to look out for yourself, but you also have to look out for other people. And when it comes to that interesting segue, because, you know, your book balances sort of like actionable ideas about, and I love this part of your book, when you sort of advise people who are more prominent and established, when they too should know when to kind of tone it down a little bit, like when they should, mm -hmm. and not for the, and not to diminish themselves, but almost for the sake of them understanding that the other person kind of needs you to balance that out. So can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a woman named Deborah Grunfield. She's amazing. She's out of Stanford. And my some of my work is an outgrowth and kind of inspired by her work. So I always like to credit the people who inspire you. And she has these things called high and low playing behaviors, which I've expanded on. Uh, high And people think of high playing behaviors as a good thing and low is bad. So for example, a high playing behavior, if you were power playing me, I might drop my smile, I might not move my head. And I might not blink so much. And suddenly I'm really telling you I'm not pleased. And even if I smile, I'm telling you I'm not pleased because when you don't move your head, you freak people out because we all are taught to affirmation, not particularly women and people of color. So if someone's power playing me, it's a really good idea to be high playing. You want to do that. But I work at Cornell University. I'm a volunteer. I, I'm a cookhouse fellow at Cornell. And I had a group of young women who worked with me who are all young women of color, almost exclusively. And they would come to my house. I actually write about them in my book and we'd have food together. 
There is no way when they came in my house, if they sat down that first day and I high played them and said, oh, it's so great to see you. I really hope you, you know, stay here. I want to support you however I can. You know, there's a power dynamic that's artificially set up by society. I'm old. They're young. They're women of color. I'm white. It's my house. I'm a cookhouse fellow. They're students. There are all these artificial things that people have set up that I want no part of. And so I'm not going to high play them. I'm actually going to play low with them. I'm going to smile. I'm going to kind of like not make a huge amount of eye contact while I'm talking to them and say, oh, I'm really happy to see you and kind of glance away and smile because I want them to understand that, you know, I want to equal that power dynamic. And sometimes you have to lower yourself to raise other people up. And that sounds like an uncomfortable concept to people. But if you think about it, you know, when you meet and in the extreme, a little kid, you're, you go down on their level and you smile and you make yourself a little small. You say hi, because you don't want to freak them out. And there's a whole continuum of that you know, and from like the guy who's like putting his hands out going, come at me, brah, you know, <laughs> he's trying to be as scary as <laughs> right, possible, right, right? right? So there's a huge continuum and you really have to think about who your audience is and how you want them to receive you and what relationship you want to develop. Oh, I love that. I mean, I just literally had this amazing interview just two hours ago. This is such a continuum of that because it was with um, the director of Lady Gaga's Born This Way Foundation. Oh, nice. And we had a whole conversation about, and she's a, a Latina, um, and she, we had this whole conversation about like people being more conscious about what, not so much what they're, what they're putting out in the world, but I guess so, but more about the thought is what experience do I want people to have with me? How do I want people to experience me? Because that almost becomes how you brand yourself. And it's pliable though. You know, you have to, like you said, know when, um, to sort of adjust to your surroundings accordingly. Do you find people have a hard time though, sort of adapting to these changes or being one thing or the other, or are they more pliable? Like what's your research telling you about people in general doing that? When I work with straight, white, extroverted, powerful men, they often aren't aware that they've developed these power play behaviors that they're using all the time and they're freaking people out. And so sometimes, you know, I have to say, hey, you know, how do you think people are responding to you when you do X, Y? And then I'll do the behavior to them and they'll say, whoa, is that what I look like? Oh, my God. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they, they have no idea. And they say, oh, oh, I got it. I, I didn't realize. What can I do? And I'm like, well, maybe, you know, to make someone feel comfortable, if you see someone getting really small or really big around you, people don't usually live in those extremes unless they're insecure. They're, you're freaking them out. You're making them uncomfortable. So maybe you need to lower yourself a little and smile at them and try to make an effort to put them at ease. And, you know, often the response is, well, you know, I mean, I don't, people don't tell me they're not at ease. And I always say, you know, privilege is the thing you don't have to think about. No one's going to tell you they're not at ease if you're the boss. <laughs> right, right. And that's the first thing I thought of when you mentioned that scenario. I thought of, you know, the I mean, of course, the the topic of everyone's choice in the past few years when it comes to race relations has been this idea of white privilege, right? And right. I've had that conversation with my friends who some of them get it and some of them are, are adamant about, you know, they don't understand it. They don't have privilege and it's hard to... To, it's hard to kind of get them to understand it um, until they kind of do. And then when they do, they go, oh, <laughs> like when they get what that means. And it's, and the thing about it is it's not accusatory. That's what I love about your, you know, what you were saying is like, it's about information and understanding that you have something that you might not be aware of. 
that gives you a benefit in life that someone else may not have. Shaming people rarely helps them learn. It's just pretty much never does. It never works. I think that, and most people I believe really do think of themselves as good people and want to be good people. And I think that's kind of the ace in the hole if you're doing uh, transformative work, is you can say to people from a place of truth, I know your intentions are good. I know this. So let me give you some tools to try to make sure that you're acting out as the person you want to be. You're using tools that will make people feel good around you. You're Because often we just don't No, I mean, I know I've been in a situation as a white woman where I've said things that, you know, my friends, thankfully, I always tell people, if somebody checks you, it means they trust you. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I have friends who who said like, you know, dude, that was not cool. And I consider it an honor because I've been through quite a journey with myself on race and no one used to tell me that. And when people would say, oh, do you think you're racist? I'd be like, no, I mean, none of my friends say I am. (laughs) (laughs) right right yeah once i actually like got it they were like dude (laughs) so you know and it's hard because you know it forces you to look at yourself too which is never easy for any of us to look at ourselves and really you know admit to something like you know we have biases or whatever it is and we all have them it's hard to kind of make that self-assessment you know absolutely i mean dolly chug if you ever get the chance to talk to her she write a, wrote a great book about goodish people i interviewed her for my podcast and she just talks about how we just are so invested in our idea of being good people that we have a hard time letting in when we make mistakes and when we make mistakes it doesn't mean we're not good people it just means we have something we need to learn yeah yeah i love that and it's uh, it also makes me think of a conversation i had recently where i was in twitter or some you know what or, or x whatever the hell it's called now and um <laughs> not to bring that up but but you know there was a, a race conversation happening and i saw a few white people trying to enter in a conversation that was about like the civil the 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 supreme court's ruling about affirmative action and so of course that was a firestorm and so a lot of black people were going on and a few times white people interjected the conversation without malintent, honestly trying to be a part of the dialogue, and they got shut down by a lot of the people, the black uh, Twitter users, you know, this is not about you, it's not about you, it's about us and mind your business. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I had to kind of jump in there and go, we cannot ask for people to understand our plight and to be an ally if we shut them down the minute they try to enter the conversation. And that's sort of, you know, what also is a big thing I see being problematic is like, you know, people not really being able to exchange dialogue. And so I think that's another thing your book does too, is sort of tells people how in certain scenarios to engage in dialogue. Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is how to deal with a microaggression. And one of the best things to do is simply to ask a question, just to say, if someone says something to you that makes you feel uncomfortable to say, what do you mean? Because just that simple thing makes them have to go, oh, why did I say that? And I found if you say that to people, what do you mean? Not in an accuse, not what do you mean, but just what do you mean? Suddenly they will go, I I don't know why I said that. Or I I, I guess that wasn't very sensitive, was it? If you give people the grace to sort of self-reflect and come there on their own, often they will. And it's really powerful. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And I've heard that example a lot from other people, women primarily, who are like, just say, what do you mean by that? And let them sort of have to really kind of explain themselves and hear themselves. And they'll be like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can just totally. see when they get it. 
<laughs> totally. I had a client who was the only woman, the only woman at the table, and she just made closed a huge deal. And her boss in front of everyone said, this is real. This actually happened, said, you know, great job. I'll make up her name, Jane. She lets me tell the story, but not use her name. So great job, Jane. I'm so glad you closed that deal. I hope you didn't go out and spend all that money on a new purse. Like, I mean, <laughs> I cannot even believe in front of like, like employees, coworkers, right? That was his, oh my God, I can't totally. And her response was, what do you mean? And he kind of stopped and went, well, you know, mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a joke. I mean, you know, what, what do I, you know what I mean? Like, it's a new person. She goes, you're making a joke about me spending the money I did on a new purse. I'm confused. And one of the men jumped in and said, dude, that wasn't cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's so great. I love her response. You know, it's so funny because everything you're saying, I mean, I literally have heard women tell me these stories. And I think another one this reminds me of is Kara uh, Golden, who is the founder of Hentwater, has an amazing story. You know, how she disrupted the whole beverage industry, which is like unheard of, right, for an unknown brand. Something she made in her, her kitchen by adding fruit juice to water so her kids wouldn't like, you know, uh, have too much sugar. But- she was doing some uh, capital, f trying to find capital to launch her company. And she has this big meeting finally with this guy and she's there and she meets him and he says, you have three kids? Who's watching the kids today? And she was like, oh. oh. And she was in the parking lot. She went, oh, the kids, yeah. Well, there are these things you may have heard of them called babysitters. And she just like stopped and like, he was like, yeah. He like kind of, she's like, yeah. So I just got a babysitter. It's not, and there's no miracle that happened or, you know. And also the fact that it's an assumption it's her responsibility is pretty intense. Right. So. Exactly. Could have been her husband or her partner or whoever, you know. Right. <laughs> and she and she has a husband. And, you know, so all the assumptions were so strange. But anyway, the, but to your point, when she tells that story today, she says that she's friends with that particular gentleman still as a colleague. And he tells the story now. He goes out and tells the story of what he did to her in that parking lot that day. So that's a great example of why when women talk and tell these stories, they help correct the behaviors. And it's so important that, you know, you share those stories. So anyway, I just think our you're fabulous. stories are our power in many ways. They really are. We, we create our narratives about our lives and about the world by our stories. And I think having, having that man listening to her, really listening and then adjusting and then realizing it was a moment for him and sharing is transformative. It's mm -hmm. really powerful what he's doing too. Yeah. Yeah. He owns it. He went out there and he's like, you know what I did to her? And because, because listen, today she's like one of the biggest CEOs like on the planet. <laughs> so, you know, he has to look back at that and be like, geez, at first he probably blew an opportunity from the sexist mindset that really turned her off in the beginning. So, but um, yeah, it, it's a corrected behavior when we learn that we do things. So now on that same note, communication, vital aspect of personal growth and development. What advice do you have for people though, when it comes to them struggling to be effective as communicators, if there's someone who's maybe, you know, timid or they don't really even know how to assert themselves. I mean, is there any sort of like, are there any little bite-sized bits of advice to help someone through that? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I would say is the whole first one fifth of my book is just all about this. And I really, really think that it's important for people to learn direct instruction and communication. You would never go to the top of a mountain, get skis on, be pushed down and expect to do it well. So why do we expect people to be naturals at communication? Some people are, many people are not. 
Um, so there are a lot of examples. One of the most important examples I think is silence. Sounds kind of strange, mm. but a lot of us are taught to fear silence, particularly women, because we tend to be interrupted more. So we can fill our speech with filler words and sounds like, ah, or, um, but you know, cause you know, like we're worried that, you know, uh, you know what I mean? Like if we mm. keep, you know, if we make any pause, someone might interrupt us. The problem is that's not a very empowered speech pattern. So, and also silence can be used to make a point. It can be very powerful. So if somebody is saying something that makes you unhappy, that you feel like someone's going after you, or they're doing a microaggression, the first step is often we jump in and try to deal with it. Say nothing. That moment of silence, just look at someone, maintain eye contact, and just let that tension be theirs to own for a moment. That gives you time to think about what you want to say and also to let the person know, you know, that's not okay and I'm not going to play ball with this. You can also use silence simply to make a point. So if you pause before a big idea, you will make people want to listen to what you have to say because it tells people, I'm about to say something really important. So that's one. There's another, my other favorite is volume, which is if you drop your volume, you can make anyone think what you're saying is amazing. So I can say, yesterday I went to the store and I got milk and I got eggs. Yes. <laughs> and the reason it feels that way is that as human beings, we build intimacy by telling secrets. And so if you drop your volume, people feel like you're talking right to them. Hmm. I love that. Yeah. Cause in my mind, I was like, I leaned in, like she made a cake, didn't she? <laughs> I totally like leaned in like, and girl, then what happened? You, I did, but you did that. I was like, wait, I totally, I mean, I felt that. And yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. I mean, cause you wouldn't even think about that, but it almost feels like you're leaning in to really trust the person. Totally. Totally. Michelle Obama does that all the time. It's hilarious to watch. She'll be doing this big talk and then she'll go in and she'll talk like this. And you can see the audience move in and they're all like, Michelle Obama is talking directly to me. And I'm like, no, there are too many of you. That's impossible. She's just super quiet. <laughs> but you know, that's interesting though, because you mentioned about the skill of communicating. Not everyone has it. And so well, you can help people with these kinds of tips that really can help them be better at it. But there are some people who are just masterful, like I, I felt, of course, Maya, who you mentioned, was one of those people. I think uh, Barack Obama was is one of my idols as an orator, and so is Michelle. Absolutely, because. But you're right; these are some things. These are some little nuggets of why they're so effective. Yeah. as speakers, people can. I do mean, that. think of Dr. Angelou. How when she's talking, she very rarely speeds up, and when she does, it is on purpose. I mean, she talks mm -hmm. like this, yeah. which is saying. You know what? I'm so powerful that I don't need to speed through this. I know you're going to wait for me. Right. You slow down for my words. Yeah. Toni Morrison was like that too. She's one of my favorites to watch in interviews. And she just took her time. And the, you could see the reporter going, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and she didn't get intimidated. She's like, I'm not finished until I'm done. And I think there's a confidence also too that has to happen over time where people like Maya and Toni just trust in their own voice and um, will not be rushed or intimidated right by by who they're talking to. So I think that comes with time, I guess. Time and practice. I mean, for me, I'm Italian and Jewish, so we tend to be a very fast-talking people. <laughs> we talk a lot. So I'm never going to be that. I'm never going to be that. But what I can do is decide what I want to highlight in my speech 
and slow that down. Because then everybody will remember that one thing because I'm fast the rest of the time. So you just probably remembered slow that down. So if you can just pull out, that's called lifting. And there are ways in which you can get people to remember whatever it is you want to just by slowing down the word that you want them to hear. Terrific. Eliza Van Court, author, speaker, survivor of many things and challenges in life, and now a triumphant author of this book, as I've held up already, but I'm going to hold it up again. A Woman's Guide <laughs> to Claiming Space. Stand tall, raise your voice, and be heard. Thank you so much for being here. This is an absolute delight. I think you're fabulous. And I really appreciate you being here today on Motivational Mondays. I am so thankful. You're amazing. This was a blast. Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.